Good morning, FBN. Hope you're all doing well out there. Thank you for braving the extreme heat to get here today. I'm pleased to, to let you know our air conditioner is still working, keeping this room cool. So I'm grateful for that. And uh, we're thankful that you fought uh, all the elements you did to be here. Thankful everybody who's joined us online today. And if you have your Bibles, get those open right to 2 Timothy. Uh, we're actually going to finish chapter 1 today. I want to thank Travis again for stepping in uh, the pulpit last week and getting us to, through verse 14. We're going to pick it up in verse 15 today and end the chapter. If you don't have a Bible... Uh, there's a black one, a seat back in front of you. Grab it and get to page 1055, 1055, because we want you to be able to follow along with us and understand that uh, what we're talking about this morning uh, is the Word of God, uh, not our opinion, which is irrelevant. Um, and so um, we're thankful for the opportunity to do that, and I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we launch out in this. Father, we are grateful uh, for each and every person who's here and each and every person who's joined us online. The, we're grateful for each one who's, who set aside this time, uh, Lord, to worship you, to, to discover more about you, to learn uh, about you, to, to experience you, to, uh, to partake in communion, to see baptism, all these things, God, that we have uh, available to us this morning. And, and we're, uh, we come before you as a people grateful for them. And so we ask now that as we uh, look to your word, God, as we look to um, this kind of obscure little uh, passage here at the end of chapter one, that you would be the one that... Uh, that would pull truth out of it for us. You'd be the one who speaks. You'd be the one who convicts and moves and encourages that you'd be the one who get the glory this morning. And we pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, Johnny Carson hosted The Tonight Show for 30 years uh, on NBC. He hosted from 1962 to 1992. And it's long been seen as the gold standard for late night shows, and he's long been seen as the gold standard for late night hosts. And I watched a documentary once that was interviewing uh, comedians, stand-up comedians who performed on The Tonight Show while uh, Carson hosted it. And they talked about how huge it was for their career. I mean, think about it. And as a comedian back then, you had to travel from city to city, try to, to build your brand, to get known. Uh, they chased their dreams. And then they got the call that they were invited on The Tonight Show. And this was before Netflix. This was before the internet. Right? So this would be their first opportunity to perform in literally in front of millions of people. Right? And this was the, kind of a huge break for their career. But each one of them talked about how that wasn't what was so important to them. What was important to them was they got the opportunity to perform in front of Johnny Carson. Carson had this move where if he really liked a comedian stand-up, he'd sit behind his desk and watch them the whole time. And at the end, if he thought they did a good job, he'd just give them a thumbs up. And all these comedians talked about Carson as if he was a kingmaker, right? So his thumbs up, they kept saying, meant more to them than any amount of applause that came from the audience. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story about a master who entrusts his servants with talents, with resources, as he goes away on a trip. And Jesus tells us that this story represents the kingdom of God. And so when the master returns, he settles accounts with the servants, and two of them have been faithful with what the master has given them, what he's entrusted to them. And both of them get told the same thing by the master. You know what they're told? Well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm going to start this morning by arguing that that line... Well done, my good and faithful servant, is a line that all followers of Jesus should aspire to. That at the end of our life, standing before King Jesus to get his approval, to get his commendation, to get his acceptance, nothing should drive us more than that. Except for maybe this one thing, that not all of us are guaranteed to hear it. Not everyone's going to hear Jesus say that. In fact, and if you continue the story in Matthew 25, this is what the third servant is told. You wicked and lazy servant. You see, the reality that we're going to stand before God one day and give account should be enough, but that's too easy to forget, isn't it? 
Future realities, no matter how true, they don't always drive present decisions, do they? And so we're coming to a passage here in 2 Timothy this morning, which all of Paul's concerns for Timothy that we've seen so far in chapter 1, they, they, come, they become a little more clear for us today. Right? Because you've been with us as we've gone through chapter 1. We've seen some concerns from Paul about Timothy. He's worried that Timothy might kind of fall back a little bit. He's worried that Timothy might uh, be too easy to give in to fear. He's worried that Timothy might be, as, he, as Paul puts it, ashamed of suffering. And today we're going to find out why. For Timothy's credit, it's not that Timothy has given Paul a reason to be concerned. It's that Timothy is surrounded by people who are all failing. He's surrounded by people who aren't staying true. They aren't being good servants. They aren't fighting the good fight. They aren't holding to the truth. They aren't guarding the good deposit. They're doing everything that Paul was warning Timothy about. And again, we'll see just based off where he's at, he's surrounded by them. And so the question that I want us to try to wrestle with this morning is this. How does someone stay faithful when they are surrounded by faithless people? How does one stay on the right path when everyone around you is veering off? How do you remain true to Jesus and his word and, and what he calls you to when everything in your society or on the internet is pushing, doing, and celebrating the exact opposite? How's a young person supposed to stay pure in action and thought when inundated with sexual images? How is a follower of Jesus to hold to biblical sexual ethics when living in a world that will celebrate them for violating or rejecting those very ethics? How does someone stand for biblical truth on a college campus knowing they could be despised for doing so? How do parents consistently point their children to Jesus and his kingdom and his values when our world will so easily and effortlessly fill our lives with pursuits of sports and academics and career and material possessions? How is it possible? Do you ever feel increasingly outnumbered or alone in your faith? This is not a new feeling among Christians. And so here at the end of chapter 1, Paul is going to continue his encouragement to Timothy today, and I hope it will be encouragement to you. And so I'm going to invite Ruth Peelman up to read today's passage. And just a quick note of encouragement for her. In this passage are three names, right? None of you can pronounce them, okay? Uh, and so as she comes up, I almost guarantee she's going to struggle with them because I've rehearsed them like 20 times this week, and I've pronounced them 20 different ways each time, okay? And so could you just, for, for her being brave and reading this in front of her, can you just applaud her as she comes up this morning? Good luck. <laughs> I have also rehearsed these several times Yes, this please morning. stand for the reading of God's <laughs> word, too. <clears throat> okay. You know that all of us in the province of Asia have deserted me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtained mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. Flawless. All right. Keep, keep your mic on. I might have you say those names for me. All right. Go ahead and have a seat. Keep your Bibles open right there to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Great job, Ruth. And that's where we're going to spend our time today, closing out chapter 1. All right. Here, let's, let's, let's be uh, overt about this, this end of chapter 1, Okay. There's a lot of passages in First and Second Timothy that are really easy to break down, right? because there's a letter that Paul is writing Timothy, and a lot of passages have him teaching Timothy something, encouraging Timothy something, exhorting Timothy something, and it's simple, just like, here's what he says, and here's how to apply it. This, these verses are not that simple, right? We could this morning 
just break down plainly what Paul tells Timothy, but we'd be missing what is going on behind the scenes. If that's all we did today, right, you would leave this morning knowing this, that Phygelus and Hermogenes are bad and Onesiphorus, see, I'm telling you, it's hard, right? Onesiphorus is good. That's what you know. And then what? And what we'd miss is this, that Timothy knows these people personally. He knows their entire story. And in the context of the letter, Paul is not trying to get Timothy to label some as bad and some as good. He's giving examples that Timothy would know in order to emphasize what he's already told him so far in chapter 1. So before we jump into those verses, let's, let's remind ourselves quickly, uh, just a quick overview of what Paul has told Timothy so far in chapter 1. He started, his first encouragement to him was to, to rekindle or to fan into flame the gift that he's received from God for ministry. He tells him not to give into a spirit of fear, but rely on the Holy Spirit for love and power and sound judgment. Then he tells him not to be ashamed of Jesus or the gospel or of Paul, who is a prisoner for Jesus. He, command, he tells Timothy to, to uh, willingly suffer for the gospel. Again, relying on the power of God to do this. Paul declares his, uh, he reminds Timothy of the amazing gospel that we have in Jesus and declares his 100% trust in Jesus Christ. And then last week, Travis read for us the verses in which he tells Timothy to hold on to this pattern of sound teaching and guard the good deposit that's been given to you in the Holy Spirit. And right off all of that, coming off of that, he sets two examples for Timothy. He reminds him of two examples. He knows that Timothy's beginning to feel isolated and is more isolated. And I believe that there are three things that Paul is trying to get Timothy to see and do and that we can, we can be blessed from each of them. And the first is this is to look at the fruit of any lifestyle that doesn't honor Jesus. Right? Again, let's, let's just be frank, right? We don't know who Phygelus and Hermogenes are. We don't know them. We don't know exactly what they did. This is the only time they're mentioned in the scriptures. We don't know what their reasons were for doing it. But do you know who does know all those things? Timothy. Remember, we told you he's serving in Ephesus at the heart of Asia at the time. And look at how verse 15 begins. Right? So Timothy's in Asia, right? Verse 15 begins, you know Timothy... You know this, right? That all those in the province of Asia have desert, deserted me. And it then continues, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. Paul doesn't need to fill Timothy in on the details. Timothy's own brain and life experience will do that for him. He was there. He experienced it. And Paul is trying to get him to relive that experience, even if it's painful, to, so he, he, he can see what comes from it. Because as we've seen in verse 8, there is this temptation in verse 8, there's a, Paul mentions the temptation for him to be ashamed of the gospel, to be ashamed of Christ, to be ashamed of Paul. Now, I don't think Paul is worried about Timothy being embarrassed of Jesus of the gospel or being embarrassed of Paul. But, but what he's talking about as, as shame there is, is, is holding back to a degree that you're not willing to suffer and endure costs for the sake of those things. And Paul is trying to remind Timothy, remember who's gone down that road. Remember who's taken the easy path. Remember who's decided that self-preservation was more important than truth. Look at the fruit. Look at all around you in Ephesus. You can't just look at what feels, what decision feels easy in the moment. You need to see what it results in long term. Timothy has seen firsthand the mess in Asia. Right? He's witnessed the desertion of truth. He sees the state of churches that are around him, and he remembers very well the mess that he had to clean up in Ephesus. And Paul's trying to remind Timothy that ease self-preservation, building your own brand. These things might seem enticing at first, but what is the fruit that comes from them? Does it actually lead to real life? Does that journey take you to a good destination? Or is it that only faithfulness to the Lord leads you to the abundant life that we find in Jesus? 
Second, he's trying to get through Timothy to reject the notion that he's alone. And this is a powerful lie the enemy tries to use on God's people throughout time. Right? When Paul is writing the church at Philippi, he, he gives them this command. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15 says this. He writes, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. You, you, that is a powerful verse, right? He doesn't hold back. Do you get what he's saying there? He's saying this world, the sin-stained creation is, is crooked and perverted. And, and what God calls his children to is to stay pure in the face of all of it. To the degree that we would be like stars. Now, do you know why you see stars at night and not during the day? Because at night, they're surrounded by darkness. That is the calling here. And with such a high calling, right, with the state of our fallen world, at times it can feel as if we are surrounded only by darkness. We feel isolated. We feel alone. We feel outnumbered. We feel outgunned. And this, this feeling, right, is, is, is nothing new. We see this all the way back in the Old Testament with Elijah. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah has one of the greatest victories in the Bible. He faces off with hundreds of prophets of Baal in this really dramatic showdown on Mount Carmel. And he proves that there is only one God, the Lord in heaven. And at the end of that huge victory in 1 Kings 19, uh, Queen Jezebel, who herself worshipped Baal, decides that she wants Elijah dead. And even though he just faced off with hundreds of prophets and had this huge showdown, he gets super afraid of her and he runs away and hides. And he actually travels for 40 days until he arrives at Mount Horeb, which is known as the Mount of God. And God appears to Elijah in 1 Kings 19 and asks him basically, what in the world are you doing here? And this is what Elijah tells God. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And listen to these next four words. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Can you feel the pain in that answer? He's saying, God, I've, I've been faithful. Everybody else has rejected you. Everybody else has abandoned you. And I'm it. I'm all that's left. That is a terribly lonely feeling. It's a feeling that Paul had to be tempted to feel while sitting isolated in a jail cell in Rome with no one around him. It's one he guessed Timothy was feeling in Asia by being surrounded by others who were deserting truth. But it's also not true. God answers Elijah. He told him to get up and get back to work. And he's, there's still more that God had Elijah for do. And then he had this parting shot in 1 Kings 19, 18. He said, Elijah, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that is not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. You're not alone, Elijah. I personally, the Lord, I have reserved and kept thousands more who are still faithful to me. And not only do you always have me, but they will stand with you too. Paul's doing the same thing for Timothy here. He tells them of Anisiphorus, right? This guy was the real deal. Look at what we're told about him, right? Anisiphorus was from Ephesus, but when he hears about Paul's plight, that Paul is in prison in Rome, he drops everything and he travels to Rome. And it's not like he didn't have any responsibilities back home, right? And the reason I'm confident of that is twice in this letter, Paul's gonna mission his household. First, he's gonna ask that the Lord will grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, and then he's gonna ask Timothy to greet them and check in on them. Why? Because Paul knows they're picking up the pieces that he'd be covering back home. Because Anisimurus traveled to Rome, and he looked for Paul, and it took him for a while. He couldn't find him, and then he found him. And then Paul writes in verse 16 that he often refreshed me. You know, that, that, that Greek phrase leads, he was a breath of fresh air to me. Don't you want to be that for other people? He wasn't ashamed of Paul. He wasn't ashamed of Paul's sufferings. He ministered to him. He, he even put himself at risk to do so. We see in verse 18 
right? Uh, that, that Onesiphorus was also active in his church back home is because Paul writes that he often ministered at Ephesus. This was a guy who simply, wherever he was, he just lived out the faith. He was selfless. He was humble. He was not afraid of risk. He was not afraid of suffering. He just wanted to be the hands and feet of Christ to those he knew. And Paul is reminding Timothy, he came from your ministry. He's grown under your shepherding. You might feel alone, Timothy, but you've got people in your own congregation who are with you. You see, part of the reason that God established the church was so that his followers would never believe that they're alone because we're not. At all times in every way, we have Jesus who's never left us and will never forsake us. We have his Holy Spirit within us, and we have the church. Our brothers and sisters in Christ who will encourage us, who will lift us up, who will stand with us. And the third thing I want to pull from these uh, verses is, is simply this, to live a life of quiet faithfulness and leave the rest to God. Now, I'll, I'll give you this confession to start. I'm not 100% sure this was exactly on Paul's mind when he wrote these verses. But I can't help but see it. Just can't. Because you know what I am certain of? I'm 100% certain of this. That Onesiphorus did not know that his acts of mercy would be recorded in God's eternal word. I'm certain of that. He didn't know that 2,000 years later, there'd be a church in Terre Haute who'd be reading about him. Their pastor would be struggling to say his name. They'd be admired by him and be blessed by his example. He had no idea of that. And on the flip side, I'm betting... And certain that Phygelus and Hermogenes would have never known that they would be forever recorded as bad examples as people to try to avoid imitating. I'm guessing that had they known, they might have chosen more wisely. So what's my point? My point is this. We have so very little control over how far our impact reaches. And this goes both ways. On the scary side of this is the implications of our sin. Have you ever noticed that you have zero control over how far reaching the impact of your sin spreads? The collateral damage of every time I reject one of God's commands is outside my capabilities to limit, contain, or control. I have no control over how far it goes. And the negative impact of my sin always goes further than I wish. It never stops with me, ever. We might try to tell ourselves it does, that we're not hurting anybody but us, but we know even when we say that, that's a lie. And that's incredibly depressing, so let's turn this more hopeful. We also have no control over how far-reaching the impacts of our faithfulness to Jesus go either. We faithfully, humbly do what God asks us to do, and wherever that goes is in his hands. The most difficult stages of preaching I've ever experienced is the early stages of COVID when which we were entirely online. Because one of the things I've always enjoyed most about preaching is just the interaction with people. I love talking to them before the service. I love tracking the engagement during the message. I love talking to people after that. And during that entire shutdown, all I got was a lens and a red light. And you record it, then you add some graphics to it, you send it out, and you do it again the next week. And it was impossible to track if any impact was being made, if anybody was watching, if anything was happening. And I tell you, the enemy pounced on that. And then one day, we received an email here at the church from somebody in Virginia that we've never met. And someone in their church knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who had seen one of FBN's services online. And we had done a series that year leading up to Easter. And there was a women's Bible study group at the church that was looking for a new study. And they ended up tracking all our series. They played all our sermons, used all our discussion questions that we were I don't even know how they found them, Right? 
And he used all that during that time. And I remember thinking, one for sure, Adam, Brandon, and I weren't thinking when we made those services, there's a women's ministry in Virginia that's going to use this, right? The last thing on our mind. We were just trying to be faithful to the congregation and calling that God gave us. But God knew all along. He knew where each of those services would go, how far they would reach. He knew the whole time. And it was a great reminder that no one should be trying to create their own platforms. No one should be attempting to build their own brand. No one should be attempting to make a name for yourself, to promote yourself to anything, to highlight your own voice. Your job and my job begins and ends with faithfulness. We take what God has given us and we're faithful to him with that. We do what he says to do. We hold true to his word. We share his gospel. We embody his love and grace and we leave all the rest to him. I confessed to Adam this week, it's my goal to quote this next verse so many times for you in the next year that you're going to get sick of hearing it. 1 Thessalonians 4, 10, 11, but we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Be faithful to God in the little things. Hermogenes had no idea how far the implications of his sin would spread. Anisiphorus had no idea how far his impact for good would go. The answer is to just be faithful to Jesus right where he has you and leave the rest to his capable hands. The results are his as he sees fit anyways. Now, I mentioned at the start, we're trying to figure out how to stay faithful even in a world that feels more faithless by the day. Right? How do we stay true to God even as we feel more isolated as Timothy was? Well, there's three points of encouragement I have for you there to close. And the first is simply this, to remember who you serve. Remember who you serve. Psalm 100 says this, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God, that he made us and we are his, his people and the sheep of his pasture. Matthew 6, Jesus is talking and says this, no one can serve two masters since he would either hate the one and love the other or he would be devoted to one and despise the other. See, our identity, our purpose, our mission in this life is this, that first and foremost, we belong to God. So we do not need to bow before any other authority. We do not need to seek the approval of others or the applause of society. We do not need to be owned by or submit to every whim and desire of our flesh. We serve and we live for an audience of one. Do you remember those comedians in the night show, how they delivered their sets to a live studio audience and it went out to millions of people on their TVs and the only opinion that mattered to them was that of Johnny Carson's? That's a great example for us to follow as servants of Jesus Christ. Yes, Hopefully we will impact others. It's a great thing to impact others for good. But the driving impetus for all of us needs to be singular. The motivating force of my life needs to be the pleasure, joy, and approval of my king. No amount of applause can match his commendation. No amount of acceptance can exceed his delight in me. No amount of ease and comfort is worth holding on to, not giving up for what he calls me to. And no amount of compliments can ever equal the weight of him delivering, well done, my good and faithful servant. We live, we serve, we give, we go, we move, we humble ourselves, we stay faithful, we strive for obedience, all for the glory of the one who made us, the one who saves us, and the one who sustains us. Remember who it is that you're serving. And secondly, stay in your lane. I love this about Anisiphorus. He, he didn't seek to build his own profile. He didn't seek to build a name for himself. You know what he didn't do? He didn't write most of the New Testament like Paul did. He wasn't a famous preacher like the Apostle Paul. He wasn't an apostle. It wasn't his job to take the name of Christ before kings 
like Paul's was. But what did he do? He did exactly what God wanted him to do. And I love, I can't tell you how much I love the heart of our Lord to include his example in his eternal word. And this is why. It's because we don't get to pick what the Lord appoints us to. We have no control over how great the impact of our efforts are, but none of that matters. We are faithful anyways. So don't promote yourself. Don't be dissatisfied with what he asks of you. Don't compare how God is using you with how God is using someone else. There's no need to declare yourself as someone with greater influence than what God has already given you. We do what we know to do. We do what he calls us to do, and we leave the rest to him. After all, Jesus has already told us the pathway to greater influence. He's told us the pathway of being used by God for more things in Luke 16 when he says, whoever is faithful in very little will also be faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. And so the pattern is you're faithful in whatever the Lord gives you, and if he deems fit to give you more, then you're faithful in that. We do what he gives us to do with gratitude in our hearts. And then lastly, we simply let God be God. That's a simple thought, but it's amazing how rarely we do this. In the book of John, we're told about the transition from John the Baptist to Jesus. Right? When, for a while, John the Baptist was the big man on the scene. Right? Everybody was coming to him to hear him preach. Everybody was coming to John to get baptized. They were, they were leaving the cities, going out in the wilderness to find him. But when Jesus showed up and started his public ministry, the crowds left John and, and then started following after Jesus. And John the Baptist's disciples weren't exactly thrilled about this because it was nice to be in the middle of everything. It was nice to be the most famous group of disciples there was. It was nice to have all the people coming to them. And so they go to John and they complain about this. And in John 3, what, what we have recorded for us is one of the greatest answers ever given to us in Scripture. In John 3, they, being John the Baptist's disciples, came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about, the one who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing. And listen to this, everybody's going to him. Nobody's come to us anymore. And listen to what John said. No one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. He must increase, but I must decrease. The posture of a faithful servant is one who receives what the Lord gives him with joy, wanting nothing more and nothing less. And then they do what they can to honor the Lord with what he's given them or charged them with, ultimately trusting the results to God. And throughout all of it, they let God be God. Paul is warning Timothy about those who have fallen away. He doesn't want Timothy to fall in their patterns. But there's something that's been consistent about all of this. Right? Those who fall away are those who lose sight of who has authority. Those who don't finish well are those who begin to elevate themselves. Those who lose contentment are falling prey to comparison. But those who stay faithful, those who lead a quiet life, those who honor the Lord day in and day out and find their joy and contentment in him, you know what they do? They let God be God. They allow him to serve his role. You see, it's not even by the sweat of our brow or the depths of our character that we remain faithful. Trying to be faithful isn't the key. The key is looking to the faithful one. Continuing our relationship with the Lord Jesus the way it began with a surrender of our will and a total reliance on him. We need Jesus for salvation, yes, but we need him in every moment and every hour of every day. It is by trusting in him. It's by relying on him. It's by trading our yokes with him. It's by allowing his power to be made perfect in our struggles and weaknesses that we can stay true even if we feel isolated. And we're getting ready to go to the communion tables of church. And if you should ever begin to wonder or doubt 
that God is worthy of such lifelong devotion and obedience and honor, then you need to look no further than what we remember in communion. When we take the bread that represents the body of God's son that was broken and beaten and nailed and pierced for us. When we take the cup that represents the blood of God's son that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And make no mistake about it, being a faithful servant of Jesus Christ should be our highest aim because no one deserves that more than he does. And so as we approach the table today, let's pause and ask God, are we really serving him first? Are we we really staying faithful? Are we actually living for an audience of one? Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the examples we have in your word of Paul encouraging Timothy to remain faithful to you. Encouraging Timothy to to remain that, that humble servant who just trust you with the results and just stays faithful to what you ask them to do. So God, we, I pray that as we uh, come to the communion table this morning, Lord, that we would, we would look at the faithfulness of our own lives. Lord, we would ask ourselves the question, are, are we really serving you first? Are you really Lord and master of our lives? Are we truly staying faithful to you in all the little areas that you've given us to be faithful in? Lord, are we living for an audience of one? Does your approval, does your applause, does your pleasure, does your uh, joy mean more to us than every other amount of applause or compliment or approval? And Lord, for any areas that you reveal that, that the answers to those questions aren't sufficient, may we turn to you at the table this morning and may we confess those to you. May we, even as we take the body and blood of Jesus, may we be reminded of the grace offered to us in him once more. And repent of that and ask that you, God, you would enable us to be faithful to you. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, at this point, I want to invite Mike Hogan, one of our elders, up. He's going to come up and lead us in a time of communion. Good morning. We were driving back from Michigan this week, and my five-year-old heard me talking about communion. And she said, Daddy, why do we do communion? Why do we do that again? And um, I've heard it said, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. So I, I, I kind of stumbled my way through as I do in most things, trying to explain it to her. I'm sure I butchered it. Um, but I want us all to, to stop as we head into this moment um, and just make sure we understand what we're doing. Uh, make sure we understand uh, what's been done for us. And um, I want to make sure that we're not just going through the motions. First uh, Corinthians warns us, uh, to, to not partake in the cup in an unworthy manner. Uh, what would that look like? Maybe complacency or going through the motions. Uh, maybe going through the, the communion process without having a relationship with Christ. So I would encourage you to, to withhold from partaking in it if you don't have a relationship with Christ. And maybe instead spend that time uh, asking Christ to be your Savior. It's a beautiful thing that we're getting ready to go through. And I just want to make sure we all understand um, and have proper reverence for it. So we'll go through a couple of, of uh, things here where we'll just examine our relationship with Christ. We'll spend some time confessing our sins. First uh, John 1 verse 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, uh, it results in forgiveness and purification uh, from unrighteousness because he is faithful and just. So I want us to spend some time as we prepare to come to the table uh, confessing your sins to a forgiving God.